When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal, but it's always beyond reality. Welcome to the program, everyone. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Like me on Facebook, please. Follow me there. Also, follow me on YouTube. That's where the live stream happens. That's where the bonus content is uploaded. That's where the fun is. The chat room's there as well. Just go to YouTube and search for J.V. Johnson. Give it a subscribe. Click the notification icon so you're alerted when we stream live and when we upload content. And then uh, you're part of our community. We really want you there. The numbers are climbing steadily, and we appreciate everybody that's subscribed so far. We've got a great show for you tonight. Ken Hansen, in fact, Dr. Ken Hansen, will be with us. He's a Judaica professor, and he'll talk about the discovery of King David's Palace in underground Jerusalem, plus the recently opened tunnels under the city. Why are these important? What do they mean, along with other discoveries uh, of an archaeological nature in the re- region. Uh, there's a lot of stuff there to talk about, including things like the Dead Sea Scrolls. And Dr. Ken Hansen is an expert in all of this, and we're going to chat about it tonight. We'll, we'll, of course, take your phone calls after uh, in the second hour of the program at 844-687-7669. And we'd love to hear your questions and your comments, and all of that will uh, start in the second hour of the program. Plus, we've got a really special treat for you if you're watching the YouTube stream, because um, is he is he ready in there, Slick? Okay, yeah, so um, our, our uh, associate or assistant, I guess, uh, producer, Arturo, is going to be doing trivia and stuff during our breaks on the YouTube channel, so that'll be a lot of fun. It's his first time. Be kind. Be gentle. Um, but he's excited to do it, and uh, you'll get to see him during the breaks um, only on the YouTube channel. And again, go to YouTube and find JV Johnson. Subscribe and join us in that uh, in that uh, community. It's a great time. Let's see what else do we have to talk about. Oh, I you know I watched uh, I watched the Curse of Oak Island tonight. Now, last season I was completely disappointed. I felt like from they did some you know major digging. Uh, they did some major things. Of course, with Smith's Cove, if you know if you've watched the program, you know what I'm talking about. But they never really found anything, and the, and the discoveries are becoming fewer and far in between. And uh, tonight was no exception. Sadly, I'm sorry if you haven't watched it yet, but there's just not a lot going on. I'm still hopeful because they're doing some pretty cool things that they're gonna they're gonna uncover something. I don't know if there's going to be a treasure at the end of this, but there might be some answers to what had happened there anyway. That's, that would be good enough for me. I don't know if it'll be good enough for them, but it'll be good enough for me. What else do we have going on? Uh, I mentioned the YouTube channel. I mentioned Facebook. Those are all great things for you to uh, be part of our group and follow what we're doing. And um, so I guess that's about it. So what we'll do is we'll go to break, and then we'll bring in our guest, Dr. Ken Hansen. We'll talk about ancient Jerusalem, some of the archaeological discoveries that have been made there recently. There's a lot of interesting stuff we have to talk about. It's Beyond Reality Radio. We'll be right back. Hey, gang, it's JV here. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Beyond Reality Radio. Some of you are new to the program. And some of you have been with us for years. And no matter if you're interested in ghosts, the UFO phenomenon, conspiracy discussions, or any of the other topics we explore on this program, we do it for you. Our goal here is to help find answers to some of the world's most enduring mysteries. And as we continue to bring you interviews and discussions each night, it's important that we get your feedback and, even more importantly, your support. The media landscape is forever changing, and as it does, we need to be able to change with it. That's why it's important for you right now to go to our youtube channel and subscribe once on youtube just search for jv johnson you'll find it there subscribe it's all free and it'll make you part of our global community in addition beyond reality radio is available as a podcast go to your favorite podcast platform and search for beyond reality radio and subscribe there as well And finally, we have an archive program that you may enjoy as well. This show can be found on major podcast platforms, and it's called Beyond Reality Paranormal. 
By supporting us in one or all of those places, you can be sure we'll be able to continue to deliver quality shows to you no matter what form the media landscape takes. As a paranormal historian, I promise you the best and most entertaining conversations as we continue to hunt for the truth. Tonight, we're going to be talking about some of the archaeological secrets hidden under Jerusalem. And man, there are a lot of them. And no better person to have on our program to talk about this than Dr. Ken Hansen. He's the coordinator of the Interdisciplinary Program in Judaic Studies at the University of Central Florida. He's an associate professor, and he teaches in the Judaic Studies program. He's also taught philosophy and religion at Rollins College. He's earned a master's degree in international intercultural communication and went on to earn a doctorate in Hebrew language and literature from the University of Texas at Austin. His multiple books and appearances on syndicated radio, such as Beyond Reality Radio and national television, including the History Channel and the Travel Channel, have brought his unique insights into everyone's world. Dr. Hansen's exceptional theatrical style of presentation never fails to captivate and engage his audience, and we're looking forward to that tonight. Ken, welcome back to Beyond Reality Radio. Great to have you here. So good to be with you again, and warm shalom from Orlando, Florida. You know, I, I'm not usually jealous of things like that, but I tell you, winter came very, very early to the Northeast. We just got 18 inches of snow yesterday. Yeah, so I understand. I tell you, what am I going to say? We're, we're gorgeous <laughs> down here, as always. Are you uh, are you a native of Florida? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Chicago, so I well understand okay. the ice and the snow and decided that uh, I want to get out of this city. So I, I headed uh, all the way to the Middle East, about as far as I, I could go. Uh, Mediterranean Sea, palm trees, and of course a lot of ancient secrets all over the land, as well as modern geopolitics, and it just kind of grabbed me. Yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating stuff, and since you kind of opened that door a little bit, let's back it up and talk about how you took an interest in this particular discipline. Um, you know, a lot of us get curious about things. Only a few of us actually make it our passion and our profession. How'd you get started? My goodness, I was a back at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and history major, it's a typical pre-law curriculum, political science minor. And one fine day, I honestly just sat down and thought, do I really want to do this? And, you know, the world might just have enough lawyers already. Do we really need another one? <laughs> and I started to have some serious doubts. But what on earth do you do with a history degree? Seriously, I wanted to do something exciting, something fun, something that wouldn't feel like a job. And how many people can say that? Uh, You've got to be willing to take some risk, though, and do some unconventional stuff. So I had done a little stint in the U.S. Army, and I had some GI Bill coming my way. And I thought, hmm, where would I like to go as a history major? And I just let my curiosity lead me. I was interested in, in the roots of Western thought and culture. Uh, because, you know, history, you can study anything, you can study China, you can study American history, but where do you want to focus? And I thought I want to go all the way back to the cradle of civilization. That's where it all began. So I hopped on an eastbound plane for Tel Aviv, still just a, a kid in my senior year of college, and plunked myself down in Jerusalem and enrolled in a little school for Americans tucked away on Mount Zion. Imagine living on Mount Zion Wow! and just threw myself into it. It, it was an amazing experience. Of course, I had a lot of culture shock. I was just a kid and ready to go home, honestly, because it, it, sure. it, especially back then, it, the, the country has grown and developed so much today. Uh, but back then, it's still basically a, a third world country. Yeah. And uh, sights and sounds and cuisine and everything is totally foreign to me. And I was just ready to, to bail out, but I thought, hey, I'd come halfway around the world. I got some GI Bill. I threw myself into the history and into the studies, and I was with a great school, a great group of people, and we were not just sitting in a library. Of course, we did that, too, but we were out on the sites, just all over the, the land of Israel, and into the digs and into the excavations, and it just becomes intoxicating. And then somewhere along the line, somebody told me how the Hebrew language is taught 
in the state of Israel today. A lot of people don't even realize that Hebrew is the spoken language of Israel, not Aramaic, not anything else. And we're talking ancient Hebrew, basically. Biblical Hebrew was just updated so that it became a modern language. And the state of Israel has to teach this fast on a practical level to new immigrants coming in to the country from all over the world. And so consequently, there's no modern language that's common to everybody. Uh, you have people who speak, uh, what, Farsi and Spanish and French and you name it, all sitting in the same class. So from the first day, it's total immersion in the Hebrew language. You're learning a biblical tongue for a modern country. And I thought, wow, that is so cool. And I, I jumped into it. I enrolled in a language program and stayed on uh, a whole additional year. And they make you fluent in Hebrew. Unbelievable. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to really tumble on to this new language and decided, hey, uh, I'm, I'm really into this now. And now I've got a key to looking into ancient texts and ancient inscriptions and archaeology. If you know modern Hebrew, you can pick up these ancient texts like the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, that uh, just compelled me. And you can just pick them up and read them like a newspaper. And that was the beginning of my odyssey. I ended up going to grad school and uh, earning my doctorate in Hebrew language and literature, kind of an unusual subject, but uh, hey, yeah, <laughs> if it works. So now I'm coordinator of the Judaic Studies program at University of Central Florida. You know, and I it, teach Hebrew, by the way. Yeah, there's nothing more inspiring, particularly when you take an interest or a curiosity in something, but you were actually standing on the ground where many of the things you were studying had happened. You were touching the soil uh, where those things happened. You were viewing the hillsides and the and and parts of the city, in fact, where many of these unbelievably historic events happened. happened. That is an experience unlike any other. You certainly don't get that from reading a book or watching a documentary. Exactly. And that's the experience of modern folks who live in the land, uh, Israelis who live there, and everybody recognizes you were living on top of the Bible, right on top of it. And this is not lost on them. Uh, in fact, I'm writing a new book now called Whose Holy Land? Archaeology Meets Geopolitics in Today's Middle East. Mm. And it gets incendiary fast, because this also is the powder keg of the real world, really, at, at the yeah, moment, yeah. Uh, where, where we've got all kinds of, of political issues that dovetail with the ancient sites, with the ancient archaeology, and who's been living here for how many thousands of years, and it, it's incendiary. It's ready to, to blow up. It's a modern powder keg. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that more as our discussion goes on. I want to go back to something else you said when you were starting to take an interest in history specifically. Then you you know picked a discipline within there, and you wanted to see where it all started, is how you put it. Um, yeah. I, I found something kind of a, a parallel in my college education. One of my favorite uh tracks of classes was uh, the history of Western civilization, because it teaches you why you are what you are when you don't even realize how you were influenced from, uh, you know, several thousand years of history. And when you start to look at it and you start to understand how um, we think the way we do in Western culture and Western civilization, there are so many things that we don't know about ourselves that we learn when we start to look at it that way. Oh, exactly. And you're a good man. You actually liked Western Civ. Loved it. Not a lot of Loved people it. Get Western Civ. Loved it. My favorite. I think it was four four courses. Uh, you know, four different levels, and I took it all the way through, and uh, it was phenomenal. Um, my favorite. My favorite courses in all of my college education, for sure. Yeah. Well, history is such a broad tapestry, and that was my background. I was into just general history, pre-law, major. Yeah. Right. Uh, and there's so many directions to go. Actually, I wrote another book uh, that finds all kinds of parallels between ancient Israelite history, you're talking about the Bible, and America, can you imagine, including the Civil War. You know, there was an ancient Civil War going on in the land of Israel over a lot of the same issues that fueled our own Civil War in the wow. United States. And then I started finding parallels between American presidents and, and ancient Israelite kings 
And it, it was so fun. I started teaching this in my classes and ended up writing a book. You mentioned powder keg, and we're going to, again, get into some detail about that on, on the other side of the break we've got coming up here. But uh, one of the things that is fascinating about that part of the world where you were doing all this work and studying is that it is the nest of three of the world's major religions. And they aren't always at odds, but they're at odds. I know. It's unbelievable. And living as I did when I first came to the land on Mount Zion, I could just walk to all these places. This is walking yeah. distance. Yeah. It's an area in the heart of old Jerusalem, and they call it the Holy Basin. The Holy Basin, because it is the cradle of three great world cultures and religions and civilizations. Uh, a civilization is bound up so much in its religious ideas you can't separate them out. No. So in this one square mile area, you've got the most important site to the Jewish faith, which is the Western Wall, the last remnant of the ancient Jewish temple. You also have, sitting on this enormous stone limestone plateau, you've got the Dome of the Rock, which is the third holiest site in Islam, number three after Mecca and Medina. Wow. And it's a gorgeous structure as well. There's just a sense of awe. It's in all the photos. You see a picture of Jerusalem, there's this golden dome. That's it. And then, just up the road, you've got the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the location, archaeologically, we're sure, of the crucifixion of Jesus. It's also an incredible site. And... uh, Pretty interesting when we're talking about uh, Jesus and you know the, the the holiday season and so on. Wow! And just, just I would just take evening strolls all of these places. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, that is that is incredible. And um, we just have about a minute here before we have to go to our break. But I, I go back to this Western Civ uh, College track that I was in, and and one of the things that we also have to recognize when we look at our culture and we look at our civilization, particularly Western civilization, is that the church throughout the middle ages was the sole um what would we call it the sole the, basically owner of education and writing and teaching and whatever the church was doing to manipulate history or design history was what we were being taught and it's kind of uh you know what sowed the seeds for what we think and what we are and uh, the, the, so you said you know religion we have to look at any civilization and and understand how important its religion is, and uh, the Western uh, civilization is no exception to that. Oh, that's right. And uh, sometimes, of course, when you're dealing with religious institutions, you end up with religious propaganda. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and a lot of it. So we've got to sort through all of that. But still, it's, it's undeniable that the way we think who we are as people is tied up with the culture that produced us, and that, in a big way, going back, was fueled and formed and fashioned by the, the major three religions, at least for, for us, the Western world, Judaism, mm-hmm. Christianity, Islam. And to go back to the heart of when they developed, wow. Remember to go by YouTube, find the J.V. Johnson YouTube channel, subscribe to it, follow the program there, because we uh, broadcast live, we stream live there, plus there's an archive of back episodes, like 400-plus back episodes, some bonus content as well. Plus, we've got some new shows. I haven't uh, I haven't really spilled the beans on any of this yet, but I'm going to soon. We've got some other shows that are going to be coming out on YouTube only, and you're going to want to be aware of them. So go to YouTube, search for J.V. Johnson, subscribe to the channel, and you will be made aware of all of that. Our guest tonight, Dr. Ken Hansen, is an author and a Judaica professor. He's got books such as The Eagle and the Bible, Blood, Kin of Jesus, and Secrets from the Lost Bible. How long have you been writing about this stuff, Ken? Oh, gosh, for at least a couple of decades. At least. <laughs> you spent a lot and of time. I'm still doing it. Yes, you still, are. still writing. My, my new book coming out next year. You, what's the name of the new one? Uh, I mentioned it's going to be called Who's Holy oh, that's right. Land? That's right. Archaeology meets geopolitics in today's Middle East. Boy. Talk about powder keg. Oh, yeah, we get into it. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, I don't, it couldn't be more appropriate. Uh, it just seems like every day, you know, we, we, we learn more about how volatile the region is. But before we get into that, and there's this kind of ties in a little bit, as you spent time in that particular area, you must have seen some of that volatility, both uh, on a local level and a regional level? 
Yeah, I sure did. And I subsequently came back to the land after my original period of studying both archaeology and history up on Mount Zion and then the modern language, came back to the States and returned again, this time with an American television outfit that was trying to do some good just north of the Israeli border in South Lebanon. Uh, So I lived on the Israel side in a place called Kiryat Shmona in northern Galilee. I was a Galilean, and I commuted over the border every day into Lebanon, um, they called it uh, Christian Tree Lebanon in those days. It was a small enclave just a few kilometers deep into Lebanon where the, the Christian uh, population had established an, an area uh, that basically tried to keep terrorism out and, and further north so they could live their lives in peace. So there was an American TV outfit that said, we ought to, have a, we ought to give them a hand here with some good American wholesome TV broadcasting. So they planted a TV station right in South Lebanon, and I was staffing it. So uh, I like to tell people, I am the man who brought Bonanza <laughs> to the Middle East. <laughs> that is, and, that's and that's quite was, a credit. <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. With Arabic subtitles, right? So imagine uh, old Hoss Cartwright lumbering onto the set saying, Alhamdulillah, <laughs> right? Um, but, but uh, of course, it was a volatile region, and yeah. I had more experience than I actually hoped or wished to have with some of that volatility, in fact. So when there was a, an event, something that happened, then I had to become a news gatherer. Um, and sure enough, one uh, afternoon, I was sitting there broadcasting, I think it was uh, either Bonanza or Rawhide, <laughs> I got a... <laughs> call on the walkie-talkie that some, something had happened on the road going into Lebanon. Um, at, at the time, um, the Israel Defense Force was up there in the security zone, as they called it, um, trying again to, to keep the terrorists away from their northern border, and that was the road I traveled all the time. Wearing a flak jacket, mind you. We had to wear flak jackets to work. Um, but um, I got a call saying something has happened on that very road, and I'd been on that road about an hour before, so now I had to just grab the, the camera and tripod and head out to the, a hill overlooking the valley, and sure enough, uh, a, a young Lebanese teenager had driven a pickup truck full of high explosives into an Israeli convoy of troops coming in and blew herself up and took, uh, I believe it was 13 young Israeli soldiers uh, took with her uh, and wounded scores more. And I had to stand up with the U.N. on the, the hilltop overlooking this carnage as the choppers came in to try to rescue people and try to, uh, hate to say it, collect body parts. Yeah. It was just horrific, the, the kind of things. And you live with this every day. If you're in that part of the world, can you imagine? No, I can't. I can't imagine, and I'm I'm certain that most of our listeners can't imagine. You know, we see and we hear this stuff on the news, but to actually have to live in fear of it every day. I mean, maybe it's a little closer to home now. We've had some, you know, tragedies domestically over right. the last few years, but still, it's uh, you know, it's it's hard to understand and and really comprehend what it feels like to live under that threat because it's ongoing and it never ends. Even with 9-11, as horrible as it was, it's been a while back. And imagine when this thing, when you have rockets coming in regularly. We just had a recent round of rockets coming into the south of of Israel and all sorts of violence and reprisal there uh, down in the Gaza area. So on both borders, north and south, it's, it's dicey. Let's talk about something a little less frightening, um, not to ignore the, the, the realities of our world today, but um, we're going to be talking about some pretty interesting discoveries in Jerusalem. But before we talk about these more recent discoveries, what are some of the milestones in archaeology that you think were important discoveries in that region? Well, you can start right in Jerusalem, because here you've got the Holy Basin, Right. that we're talking about. Yeah, and it, it, it's hard even to isolate the most important, because there are so many. Uh, okay, we're coming into the Christmas season. I do a lot of work as a Jewish historian with the historical Jesus. 
Well, when I first came to the land, uh, so much of it was yet unexcavated, so much of Jerusalem. And there was a grassy knoll area along the western part of the ancient wall, actually the Turkish wall as well, in old Jerusalem. And I was there many times. It's a grassy area. You could have a picnic there if you wanted. Well, in the last couple of decades, that has been brought all the way down to the level of the ancient Herodian street. We're talking about King Herod the Great, who lived 2,000 years ago. And there's a British archaeologist, uh, I've met the fellow, who's written a whole book about this, who identified in this area that they've brought down now in in the archaeology. They're just clearing out. The Israelis were just clearing out and bringing it down as low as they could. He found a gate there, or the remains of a gate, in what was the actual palace of King Herod the Great. Oh, wow. And here's the clear outlines of this ancient gate. And when this British archaeologist started comparing that with the description in the New Testament of the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate, everything lined up perfect, identical. There's the remains of a staircase where the crowd would have been situated. Wow. Jesus would have been brought right out that gate and stood there, and then there's another area to the side which we would call the Praetorium. This is where the Roman prefect would have sat in a throne-like structure while the accused was brought out in front of him. It's all there. And the uncanny thing is, to this day, very few people, unless you're an archaeologist or a specialist, know what it is. And people go by, buses go by all the time. The tour buses will take Christian tourists to another location and say, oh, yes, right here, here, right right here, this is the trial of Jesus. It's not. It's bogus. <laughs> they take people to the wrong location because nobody knew about this new site until it was uncovered just in the last couple of decades. As we unearth these things, find these things, what does that tell us about the accuracy and the meaning of what we read in the Bible? Are we learning that this truly is... Uh, something of a very, um, not just historical account, but a religious account, as we've been taught? Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Because in archaeology, just as in geopolitics, you've got a battle going on. And we have serious archaeologists who say, we are on to material here that uncannily verifies the biblical text on any number of levels. We have other serious archaeologists who have somehow gotten known as minimalists, who basically like to minimize the biblical record and say, you know, there's not a lot of history behind this. And even the archaeology doesn't bear out most of these stories. And it's back and forth. We have whole academic conferences on this. I was just at one in San Diego last week uh, called the Society of Biblical Literature. And this is where our scholars and specialists, myself included, come to hash it all out. And we almost come to blows on occasion, but uh, it's nice to be able to sit down over a nice glass of wine afterwards. But that's what it's like. We're dealing with amazing stuff, and which side of the fence are you on? Uh, For example... Okay, what about King David? What about King David? Right. Did he even exist? And that's quite a question coming into the holiday season, because people go to Bethlehem. I've been to Bethlehem many times. But what was Bethlehem? It was known as the city of David, where David grew up as a young boy, and then he he got into the court of King Saul, and then he became king, and... Ultimately, he moved the capital to Jerusalem, conquered an ancient Canaanite city, and and said, this is now our capital, built a palace there. Was there a King David? Did he exist? And our minimalist friends say that King David is about as historical as King Arthur. Hmm. Hmm. 
<laughs> okay, how historical was King Arthur? Maybe there was a guy named King Arthur. Right. Talk about history, right? Western right. kids? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if he existed, he probably had a, a little uh, shack somewhere uh, out near Scotland. <laughs> right. That's about as, as big a kingdom as he had. Forget Camelot. And that's what's alleged about King David. Maybe he was entirely invented. Maybe he didn't exist at all. And if he did, maybe he had a little uh, Bedouin tent somewhere on a hillside, and that was it. Can archaeology verify any of this? And the answer is maybe. Maybe. <laughs> You've got a lot of maybes for us tonight, Ken. <laughs> totally. I, but I that's that what's fun. Brings us to the question about King David's palace. What, what's been found? Well, actually, we ought to start even beyond excavation of his palace. Okay. Back in the 19th century, the British, this is part of the British mandate for, for Palestine in the early 20th century, but the British were already excavating in the 19th century. They commissioned a British military mining expert. You could not make this up. By the name of Lieutenant Charles Warren, <laughs> who, who earned the nickname The Mole, the mole, because he liked to dig underground. And they sent him off to Jerusalem, the British did, it's under Queen Victoria, uh, to see what he could unearth about ancient Jerusalem and David, as well as places like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The big trouble in Jerusalem is, even today, that the sites have such an aura of holiness, you're not supposed to touch them, and you're certainly not supposed to be doing excavations there, especially on the the most holy part of the ancient city. Jews call it the Temple Mount. Arabs call it the Haram al-Sharif, which means the noble sanctuary. That's where you have this big golden dome, the third holiest site in Islam. This is where, in tradition, the Prophet Muhammad who had come from Mecca in one night, ended up on this very holy rock, and a ladder of light took him up into the heavens to meet Allah, where his heart was washed with pure water and then sent back down again. So they built this Muslim shrine centuries and centuries ago, way back the earliest foundations in the 600s of the Common Era. Now this beautiful golden dome there. But the Arab authority said, you cannot... Warren, you cannot dig anywhere uh, around the noble sanctuary, uh, this, this great, enormous plateau. So what did he do? He started uh, digging in other areas around the ancient city and just seeing where, he could, where it would lead him. One place he went was an ancient water conduit system that connected the ancient city with a natural spring outside the, the city walls. And he's under, underground in this water conduit, zigzagging through the water. Now, I've been through there many times. It's been, been done up very nicely in recent years. But, but back then, can you imagine, this British mining expert, right, four hours in the cold water, zigzagging through. And he finds in the midst of this a perpendicular shaft going straight up that he believed was the, the actual site where King David and his men would have attacked the ancient Canaanite city. The Bible mentions a specific word in Hebrew. The word is tsinor, which translates as a pipe. A pipe. We call it today a pipe. Like if your pipe goes bad in your house, it's a tsinor. Well, if you take that back 2,000 years, we can think of some kind of tunnel or channel, like a drainage channel. Mm -hmm. And Warren found this that went almost straight up, and it became known as Warren's Shaft, that he was convinced might have been used by King David to conquer the city. That was the first clue. Now, subsequently, we know he probably didn't use that particular shaft, but another has been found that might, in fact, again, we have to say maybe, might have been the actual biblical route that that David took with his men to conquer the old city. Well, okay, maybe he conquered it that way, but what about beyond that? The Bible says that he built a palace in the oldest part of today's Jerusalem. Do we have any evidence of that? Well, now flash forward into 
actually, as as recently as 2005, we have a third-generation Israeli archaeologist named Elat Mazar, who was very interested in finding remains of the actual palace of King David. And she, she saw a sort of a stepped-like structure that's clearly visible in one part of the ancient city today, just to the south of the Temple Mount, actually, and wanted to dig there. Trouble is, this is an area of, of East Jerusalem, populated predominantly by Arabs. And this is part of where the city would be divided in case there ever is a peace deal. This is where uh, geopolitics gets into the mix. Right. Again, tonight we're talking with Dr. Ken Hansen. He's a Judaica professor, and we're talking about recent discoveries in Jerusalem, plus some other uh, ancient uh, um relics and uh, discoveries that have been made that help point us in the direction of the truth about that unbelievably rich in history city. You can check out his website, treasuresintime.org, plus a bunch of books there. Uh, and, and the new book you said is coming out, Ken, in about a year or so, or next year? It should be the middle of next year. I'm, I'm writing it now about a lot of the things we're discussing tonight, so keep your eye open for that. So we were talking about uh, King David, and we were talking about the hunt for more um, I guess, archaeological finds that would substantiate his existence. And you were talking about East Jerusalem. Pick it up where you left off and uh, tell us why that's important. We have an important third-generation Israeli archaeologist from a family of archaeologists. Her name is Elat Mazar, and she notices an area to the south of the Great Temple Mount where the Golden Dome is, that she thinks would have been a perfect location for King David to build his palace. But how do you dig there? Because this is Arab East Jerusalem. She's Israeli. And this is a problem. Now, the Arab side of the archaeological debate uh, lines up with those who say, you know, uh, we don't think that there was a King David. Probably didn't exist. You with me? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm here. I'm. I'm absorbing it. <laughs> okay. 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 Just want to make sure. And so, she's approached by an organization of Israeli settlers. This is where it's really dicey. Mm-hmm. These are Israeli Jews who say, you know, this whole land used to be Israelite thousands of years ago, and we want to be able to live here again. We conquered it, by the way, in a war in 1967. Well, the Palestinian side obviously doesn't see it that way. This organization of settlers called El-Ad began buying up Arab houses in exactly the area where Elat Nazar wanted to dig. And, well, hey, you, you can buy a house if you want. It doesn't matter what country you're in. If you got money, you can buy a house. So these Israelis started buying houses, and then they said, you know... We think we want to enlarge the basement. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's start digging down. And they did, and Elat Mazar got involved and came upon some amazing discoveries, including the foundations of an enormous stone structure that would have been a perfect fit for David's palace. We're talking about a building, an ancient structure that had walls some seven meters thick. And she starts finding artifacts down there. And she thinks she has actually discovered the palace of King David. But imagine how incendiary this is. Plus the the minimalist archaeologists come on board and say, okay, you found this uh, ancient palace, so what? How ancient? Do you have anything there that says, house of King David? David lived here. Well, no. So we put on our Sherlock Holmes hats and start examining the circumstantial evidence. You've got ancient Canaanite pottery that dates around the 10th century before the Common Era. That's exactly when David would have lived. And you have to start asking questions now. Who would have built a massive stone structure with walls seven meters thick? Who would have done that? Uh, We don't think the ancient Jebusites did it. It was too massive for them who would have done this? And then you've got biblical texts that talk about a major kingdom in this area, major kingdom that would have had 
a central governmental complex involved with it. And when you can put artifact and text together, now we think we're on to something. So I'm one of those who thinks that there's real validity to this. But again, it's the modern powder keg. And what are you going to say? that Because Arabs live in this area that you can't dig for some of the most important archaeology ever to be found? But that's where we're at today. Wow. It's exactly where we're at. We, we think, at least some of us think, that we have found the, the very beginnings of the reign of King David. And then when you start evaluating these other ancient tunnels that connect, all, it's like a honeycomb uh, underneath. It's a whole ancient city underground. I mean, we're talking real Indiana Jones stuff here. Uh, but, but you cannot dig underneath the Temple Mount. That's a huge problem. Because, again, you've got the third holiest site in Islam there. And any attempt even to dig there could set off World War III. I'm not kidding. It's that, it's that much a powder keg. You said, I just want to clarify, you said the walls of this, uh, the foundation of this particular discovery, they were seven meters, like that. we're talking like 21, 22 feet thick? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, can you imagine? That's massive. Uh, so you just have to start putting the pieces together. We have some other finds from that underground subterranean area, and visitors can go there today, even though it's in Arab East Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Right? Visitors can go. It's, they've made a beautiful visitor center. Some other finds date from the period of, of the prophet Jeremiah, and some of the figures mentioned in the Bible in connection with Jeremiah have ancient seals with their names in it. Phenomenal. Of course, even that is a couple of centuries later than King David, but it gives us a sense of continuity in the story and the narrative from the Bible and in what we find in the remains. We haven't found anything with David's name on it right. yet in that area. Is, is, it conceivable, have... is it conceivable to find a crest? or, or uh, did, they, did they use things like that that would identify themselves or their families or... Uh, anything like that? Coins and inscriptions. Coins and inscriptions. Now, we do have an important inscription that's way up north toward the border of Lebanon. Where I live, I live right near this archaeological site called Tel Dan, almost to the border of Lebanon. And a couple of decades ago, that was being excavated, and somebody started shouting, Hey, I found something! I found an inscription! And this marvelous elderly Israeli archaeologist, Avraham Biran, uh, who one of his team members shouting, and he comes and he looks at this inscription, and it says in ancient Paleo-Hebrew, plain as day, Bet David, the house of David. And it dates to about a century and a half after King David would have lived. It says house of David, and it's way up north. Now, who could that be? Yeah, right. <laughs> when the Bible talks about King David, who had a dynasty. Now, the minimalists say, well, it says House of David. It doesn't say King David. Okay, how are you going to have a House of David if you never had a King David? <laughs> so that, that's part of the evidence that, that we have. Now, the Bible also talks about an ancient temple that was built by the son of David, who was known as King Solomon, Solomon's Temple. To date, not a trace of that temple has ever been found. But the problem, again, is we've got a Muslim site is it, sitting is it, on the Temple Mount. Is it fair to say that there have been other things in the Bible which you could have said, to date we have not found a single trace of whatever it is, and then all of a sudden we found something? Is, has that happened? Many times, yeah, right. But but, the, but everything we find is debated. Of My course. goodness, we could do a whole show just on Jericho. <laughs> everything, everything is debated. Was there an exodus? Were Israelites ever in Egypt? Do we have any remains? On and on it goes. So it's a lifetime of study and research, and also a lot of fun. Ken, before we went to break, you started to say something about a an intrepid explorer. Those are those are some pretty interesting words. Who are we talking about here? 
Oh, we're talking about the Rabbi Emeritus of the Western Wall of Jerusalem, known as Yehuda Getz. Now, we have to take you to the Western Wall. It's called the Kotel in Hebrew. A lot of Westerners refer to it as the Wailing Wall. Incorrectly named, it's really the Western Wall, but it is the holiest site in the Jewish faith. Always has been. This is the last surviving remnant of the retaining wall of the ancient temple. Now, the temple, as I mentioned, we can't find a trace of it today because the city was conquered by the Muslim Arabs uh, in the 7th century of the Common Era. They built this enormous, beautiful structure, the Golden Dome of the Rock that sits there now. Uh, A lot of us, including myself, believe that that dome sits exactly on the spot of Solomon's Temple and later Herod's Temple. But all of that is on this enormous platform constructed by King Herod the Great, 480 meters by 300 meters. I mean, we're talking multiple football fields you could fit in on this massive stone platform of enormous uh, limestone ashlars. You, you can't begin to describe what it's like. Even the Romans could not destroy this stone platform. And the western side of that, of that platform is known as the Western Wall, holiest site in, in Jerusalem. Well, what happened in 1967? The Israelis conquered the whole of Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, and everything all the way to the Jordan River. And suddenly, Jews had the option to visit the wall and even to dig there. Follow me so far? Yep. There's this guy named Yehuda Gates. And in 1967, just after Israel conquered this, this territory, said, you know, I would like to really start digging along the Western Wall, going underneath the Muslim Palestinian Arab homes that are in the Muslim quarter of the old city. He started digging underneath all of this, right along the Western Wall. And it was a clandestine dig by this intrepid rabbi <laughs> explorer, uh, hundreds of meters along, inside, underneath, underground he is. And uh, along the way, he finds a sealed gate known as Warren's Gate, because who had found it first? This British mining expert, Charles Warren, the mole, in the 19th century, had found this gate. Now Yehuda gets the Israeli rabbi finds it, and he decides to, to tunnel through it perpendicularly underneath the, the Dome of the Rock. Can you imagine? Wow. And he actually starts doing it in clandestine way. He's digging under there and finds this whole, uh, like a honeycomb of tunnels and caverns and caves underneath. And up top, the Arabs are up there. They're, they're worshiping, they're praying and so on. And through the grate of, of the drainage system up on top of this plateau, they hear sounds of digging underneath. They dispatch some sturdy young guys to go down there, and they find Rabbi Getz <laughs> looking down underneath. Can you imagine? You could not make this up. No. That sounds like a great movie. <laughs> Literally, they come to blows. There's a scuffle underneath. And, and this kind of stuff could erupt in, in war, actually. Rabbi Getz made an amazing claim. He said that during all this frenzy, he actually spotted the Ark of... You know, that's very bizarre because you just cut out as you started to say that, so say it again. Uh, yeah, he, he, Rabbi Getz claimed that he actually laid eyes on the Ark in those tunnels. Why? What's going on? Every time you say those words, you get you get cut out. You get cut off. The the arc. Um, it's okay, very, hang on, hang on. It's very bizarre. That's <laughs> very strange. Let, 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 let me better now. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, I, I I'm using some Apple AirPods here, and I think I think the charge is running out. Oh, maybe, maybe. So say it again. We've got to go to break in about twenty seconds here. So say it again. So Rabbi Getz claims that he actually has laid eyes on the Ark of the Covenant in those subterranean tunnels down there. Can you imagine? That's unbelievable. This is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 
did he get any and, photographs? And did he get any? I mean, it was it's it was a time when there you know photographs shouldn't have been difficult. Well, he has to leave because there's yeah. a fight going on, oh, and he's, he's actually the, the Israelis command that he get out of there oh, because this could erupt in a in a yep, war. Yep. All right. And the, the place is sealed up, and to this day, uh, nobody knows. Yikes. Man, is there any chance, Ken, that there's ever going to be an opportunity to do any real excavation around um, that site? Um, That's a tough question. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> but it's all underground, and even the underground stuff is so charged with politics. It, wouldn't it be great to go back through the tunnel that Rabbi Getz had opened, Warren's Gate, Charles Warren's Gate, and get down there and see what there is to see? I mean, uh, frankly, I have a lot of trouble imagining that the Ark of the Covenant could have survived. And there's all kinds of stories. Maybe it went down to Ethiopia and is housed in a church down there. I know a fellow who thinks that it's out in a cave near the Dead Sea, and he's act- actively working at it as we speak to get permission to dig out near the Dead Sea. He thinks the Ark of the Covenant is out there. But maybe that when the temple was being destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., they lowered it down underneath the temple into this subterranean era area that is exactly the place that, that Rabbi Getz was exploring. Who knows? And how on earth did we find out? And what on earth did Rabbi Getz see? Did he just make it up? Why would he do that? Was he lying? Or did he actually see something? And if so, what was it? And how will we know? That whole area has continued to be incendiary because even after Rabbi Getz, the tunneling continued, not not underneath the Dome of the Rock, but adjacent to it. And it, it has uncovered some of the most massive limestone blocks ever ever discovered wow. that were along that most holy site in the ancient Jewish society. One of them, I've seen this stone many times, there's one single massive stone underground along that same route that weighs in at a staggering 570 tons in that wall. Wow. One stone. This is among the heaviest objects ever raised by human beings on the planet without mechanized cranes. We don't even know how they moved it in antiquity. You put it on log rollers and crush the logs. Right. How on earth did they get this thing into place? And you can go down there today and see it. Walk along that same passageway where Rabbi Getz was. You can't, you can't go under the dome, but you can walk adjacent. Now what happened? was the the Israelis decided, wouldn't this be a great tourist attraction? Uh, Bring tourists in one end and lead them all the way through, and we need an exit on the other side uh, of this tunnel. And they opened such an exit um, back in 1996, Uh, and it, it exits right into the place known famously as the Via Dolorosa, where in Christian tradition Jesus carried his cross. But even that was geopolitical, because the whole pathway is underneath Arab East Jerusalem. And the, the Palestinians just had a fit when the, the, uh, this tunnel was finally open, and rioting broke out all mm. over the city. And it was a mini-war going on. The Israelis brought in tanks, helicopter gunships over an archaeological tunnel? Yes. <laughs> right. Uh, by the time it was all over, some 68 people had been killed in in the rioting. Can you imagine? Wow. That's how hot it is. And it's a shame because, you know, there are answers there to be found, and we're just unable to search for them because of the, um, you know, the controversy surrounding it all. And that, the that's, politics. It's a, yeah, the politics, uh-huh. exactly. It's a real shame. Yeah, yeah, it's uncanny. It's the only place in the world where archaeology and geopolitics meet, and that's yeah. what the, my new book is about. Uh, back, in fact, not long ago, 2004, there was... A lot of this stuff happens accidentally. Uh, there was some repair work being done in the city of Jerusalem, right near this ancient city of David, as it's called, and it seems that a sewage pipe had burst. And so they sent in crews to repair the pipe, but whenever you do any repair work in this part of the ancient city, you have to have competent archaeologists accompanying the work team. It's a municipal law. So while they were repairing the sewage pipe, 
they heard the sound of scraping, like steel against stone. And the archaeologist said, hold on, hold on. You got something here. And so they start carefully clearing away the debris and start digging down. And sure enough, they've got the remnants of a stair-lined ancient road that would have led up to the Temple Mount from an ancient water cistern, which is known famously in the Bible as the Pool of Siloam. That's the place where in the New Testament Jesus is said to have healed a man who was blind from birth, told him to go wash, and he was healed and got his sight back. That's the very ancient pool we're talking about. Sure enough, there was a road, a pilgrimage road, from that pool going right up to the Temple Mount, because people had to wash themselves, purify themselves in water, to to make themselves ritually pure before they could ascend to the ancient temple. And now we've got this road, and the whole thing was opened up over subsequent years, again, with tunneling. They've tunneled down underground, and they've opened up this entire amazing road from the days of Herod the Great and, of course, Jesus of Nazareth, who would have walked this very street. They just opened this road last summer, last June. It was a big, big ceremony, and you had Jason Greenblatt and U.S. Ambassador to Israel David Friedman there, and they constructed a little papier-mâché wall and and uh, David Friedman took a little sledgehammer and broke through the wall to commemorate the opening. And and guess what? There was international outrage. Uh, the, the U.N. started condemning all of this because, again, this is Arab East Jerusalem. And if ever the city is divided in a future peace deal, Jerusalem is going to have to be split down the middle. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, we're going to run out of time here, so I want to get a couple of these other questions in. It, when you start talking about these things and, you know, these these amazing archaeological treasures buried under feet of whatever, debris, dirt, uh, soil, uh, other buildings, how is it that things like palaces, roads, and sometimes whole cities get buried and lost to time? How does that happen? It, it happens when one city, one civilization, one habitation is conquered by somebody else. And I can't tell you how many times in history Jerusalem has been conquered and reconquered and reconquered and reconquered. And this happens all over the ancient Near East. One city will be conquered by somebody else. Jericho, for example, will be conquered, and it will be burnt down, because that's what happens in a conquest. It's burned, and then the new people, the conquerors, come and they build on top of it. And then till they get conquered by somebody, and then there's another burn layer, and then somebody builds on top of that. And we have entire artificial mounds that dot the whole Middle East today. Each one is called a tell, a tell, and it's the remains of an ancient city. I've dug on these, and it's, it's a remarkable thing because you're, you're out there, and the, in the heat of the day is just absolutely sweltering. You've got a spade in hand, you're digging down, and all of a sudden the soil turns black. And, oops, you just encountered a burn layer. Oh, wow. One civilization was conquered and was destroyed, burned, and that's the remnants of it. And you can date things. It's almost like paleontology, where you, you, know, you find bones in different layers that you can know exactly the time period by the layer. And that's what we're talking about. So, so this is actually quite common. Uh, and even ancient Rome, my goodness, uh, fell over centuries and was abandoned, and some, what, 40 feet of, of rubble and debris accumulated in the Roman form just over time and had to be excavated and cleared out. So uh, when you come to Jerusalem, it's, it's even more rich because so many different layers. The tunnels that uh, you were referencing before, and you said there's basically a honeycomb of tunnels um, do we know what their purpose was? Do we understand what, why they were built? Yeah, because let's assume that there was a King David and there was a King Solomon. We can't prove it, but we've got some good circumstantial evidence that there was a temple, a Jewish temple that was built there around 1000 B.C. or B.C.E., as we say, on a natural hill called Mount Moriah. 
uh, in the, the biblical text. And that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BCE. Then another temple, a second temple, was built there, which in turn was enlarged by the famous King Herod the Great, who built one of, of the wonders of the ancient world, uh, and a yet new temple built on the site where the Dome of the Rock is. But in doing so, he extended the natural hill, Mount Moriah, in all directions, and built this enormous limestone platform uh, of 480 meters by 300 meters. It's just huge. And the platform is still there today. Uh, and so he built a, an entire system of a honeycomb system of vaults in order to extend what was a hill into an enormous plateau with retaining walls on every side. And that's what we see today, to go underneath there, th th these vaults built by King Herod. Incredible. Yeah, it if is. we could do it, if it, we could get there. It, it is incredible. Um, I just want to spend a minute talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls, because uh, you've done a lot of work with them, written about the Dead Sea Scrolls. How important are they in our understanding of this time period? An another discovery that came about by sheer accident back in 1947, when a young Bedouin shepherd lad was looking for his lost goat, stumbled into a cave out near the shore of the Dead Sea, and came upon a series of earthenware jars, big pottery vessels, barely visible in the dim light. And he broke open these jars and found in one of them a big, oddly wrapped bundle of something, some kind of ancient parchment. He didn't know what it was. Brought it back to his Bedouin tent, and they opened it up. It's covered with all sorts of chicken-scratch lettering. They couldn't read it. They speak Arabic, of course. And they, they hadn't studied uh, Hebrew as I had. They didn't know what they were reading. And they took it to the flea market, essentially, in a little town called Bethlehem. Bethlehem of Judea sold it to an Arab shopkeeper, a Christian Arab shopkeeper in Bethlehem, who in turn sold it to an archbishop in Jerusalem, and it went from hand to hand to hand, and still nobody knew what it was until finally an Israeli scholar got hold of the first of them and actually could read it, because this Hebrew language has not changed substantially in the last 2,000 years. It's the same language. And he looked at these parchments, and in instantly he could read them. He was blown away, because we've got a library now from the days of King Herod and Jesus and John the Baptist and all these characters, an entire library of texts, biblical as well as scores and scores of non-biblical books that never made it into our Bibles. And now we're looking at them for the first time. Mind-blowing. Yeah, and that has to be um, a monumental uh, discovery, and maybe even, in a way, a change in, in how we've perceived and looked at all of this. Totally, because for the first time, we've got the, the texts that go way back, a thousand years older than the previous oldest text of the Bible, yeah. as well as these non-biblical texts, rule books, manuals of a, some kind of ancient Jewish pietistic sect who lived out in the middle of nowhere, literally on the shore of the Dead Sea, it's the lowest spot on the face of the earth, built their own community out there, eagerly anticipating the Messiah to come, kind of an alternate society. And yeah. here's their rule books, here's their manuals, an entire book of Psalms that never made it into our Bibles, that are full and charged with Messianic references. They really believed the Messiah was coming, and they were living under Roman domination. And some of us think that, that their mentality actually fueled the Great Revolt against the Roman Empire that broke out in the year 66 of the Common Era, that, that resulted in the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem, total devastation the Romans brought. And all of this is tied in together in those Dead Sea Scrolls. Do you think, and I know you're not a politician, you're not, uh, you, don't, you don't pretend to be, but you're writing about the geopolitics of that region and how it connects to uh, this archaeological material. Uh, do you think it's ever going to get better? Do you think we'll get to a point where we can freely explore and learn more about these sites? 
Um, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. Uh, it, it, it's a tough neighborhood. I'll definitely say that. And the, the tension is, should we not be able to freely explore these sites? And yet when there's such a tension and a religious tension, you can't separate it out no. from the politics of, of the day. Maybe if we can come to a larger settlement in the region, but how are we going to do that? I, I, I do have yeah, some it's an uphill, ideas, which are which are political, but that's an, another show. It's an uphill climb. I want to grab one listener call here. We've got just about a minute for Fred in North Carolina. Hey, Fred, welcome to the show. Yeah, great show. I, uh, I'm really intrigued with all this and have, have heard before about some of this. I, I was uh, I took a class many decades ago from a gentleman that helped discover the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I was going to ask if he knows about there was one scroll that was inscribed on a rolled up piece of copper to preserve it better, and I was wondering if he knew anything if he knows about that. Oh yes, the famous copper scroll. Yeah, uh, that contains an inventory of. Buried treasure. Here we go again. Yeah. There's Harrison Ford. Right. Are you listening, Harrison? <laughs> uh, it, it, this was actually the genesis of the whole Indiana Jones series. Uh, Spielberg was out there. And is, isn't uh, Jim Barfield? Uh, Jim Barf? Is that his name? Jim Barfield? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I know Jim. Yeah. I know Jim. We've had well. him on the show. And yeah. I, I, I mentioned I know a gentleman who thinks he's onto the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, that's who I thought you were talking uh, about it's when you among mentioned the treasures of the Copper Scroll in a cave out there. Yep. Yep. Hey, uh, Fred, uh, thanks so much for that great question. We're just out of time. Uh, Ken, we we have run out of time. Where can people get a hold of your books and find out more about your work? Go to treasuresintime.org, treasuresintime.org. And also, you can just you can just type my name into YouTube, Kenneth Hansen, into YouTube, and it'll bring you to my YouTube channel. I have a whole YouTube channel of videos. They're like TV episodes. Actually, they're courses that we offer at the university, and I've made TV shows around them. Oh, that's great. Six different courses you can take. And and they're like TV shows with music and the whole bit, and I do get into character impersonation, and it's it's a lot of fun. So you can go to YouTube, type in Kenneth Hansen or treasuresintime.org. Thanks for being here. We're looking forward to having you back when the new book comes out. Outstanding. Anyway, thanks to Ken Hansen for being with us tonight. Uh, great conversation and very interesting topic. We'll have him back on the show uh, as soon as we can. Please visit the YouTube channel and subscribe. Just go to YouTube and search for J.V. Johnson. You'll find it there. Subscribe to it. It's free. There's no charge to do that. A lot of great back episodes. Plus, you can catch the live stream when uh, when you're um, ready to do that. Plus, a great chat room as well. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Entercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.